Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Okay, welcome everyone. Welcome to class three of analytics and storytelling uh, brought to you by the Emory Marketing Analytics Center and your co-instructors, myself, Mike Lewis from Emory University and Jay Busby from Yahoo Sports. How are you, Jay? I'm doing well, my friend. Three classes, two classes down, one more to go. Okay, and so for those of you listening, for the students and anyone else jumping in, we, I, I, not we, I have managed to record, to mess up the recording twice <laughs> so far today. So, um, today's session is about analytics. Um, th this idea of sort of, you know, last, last class, Jay talked a lot about the mechanics of storytelling. This time the, the focus is going to be on, well, the, the numerical side of this, the quantifying the side of it. Um, we're going to switch up the roles. Jay, you're going to sort of take the lead in terms of shepherding me through this one. Right, right. This is like a, like a two-man weave here. We're bringing the, bring the ball up the court. So, so I've got the ball now. So I'm going to set you up. Um, basically, what we see all the time is that people who work in sports start out as fans. You know, it's very rare to find someone who's working in sports who wasn't initially a fan of a team or of a sport. So what is your secret origin? Where did you begin as a fan and how did you make that transition from fan into analyst? Okay. And so starting point, and I love the way you asked that question in terms of analyst to fan, because, you know, my starting point for really the last decade has been taking the skills I have. You know, my training is in statistics and optimization. And the early part of my career was really focused on understanding consumer behavior, quantifying consumer behavior, you know, figuring out how much a customer was worth over the long haul. And about a decade ago, I decided I wanted to essentially, even though I think it, it often feels like I'm getting more narrow by concentrating on sports, I actually think in some ways it's getting to something more fundamental, to take those quantitative skills, those analytical skills, those modeling, those statistical modeling skills, and apply it to instances of what I think of as extreme customer loyalty, customer passion, which really translates to, you know, passion for distinct elements of the culture. And so I'm absolutely a cliche on this, Jay. It's an effort to take my hobby and turn it into the job. <laughs> so, you know, that's how I ended up here. More power to you. So let's dig into that. Uh, we're going to proceed from the idea that we discussed last time about the idea of storytelling and the way that content continues to be a, an ever more important element 
of, of all phases of society today, whether it's our own personal brands that we're curating on Instagram or the, the, the larger brands that, uh, that, that companies are trying to put across on social media and so forth. So once we work from the premise that everybody's involved in storytelling, where do you bring analytics into that picture? Okay, so let me make kind of two points on this and feel free to kind of jump in because sure. what, what I want to do today is kind of hit you know, three or four main points that we can use as a jumping off point for when we talk to the, the students. So n- number one, you know, storytelling, content, this is, these are really amazingly complex products, right? I mean, when you think about what it, it goes into an article that you write, what goes into a podcast or a TV show, there's a lot of moving parts, right? I mean, there's, there's thousands of words, there's pictures, maybe there's guests, there's variations in, in, in content. And so bringing analytics to something of that level of complexity is, number one, an incredibly challenging thing. Um, and I'm glad we did this in the, the sequence because, you know, in some ways what you do is, well, I don't know, do you think of what you do as a little bit of kind of a form of art? I mean, is that, is that too pretentious of a word? No, I, I actually try to make it a little bit. I mean, it's this is a. I don't. We don't need to go back into my section again. But uh, you've you've seen how AI has taken over just the conversation, even over the last few weeks. And there will be all kinds of talk about uh, AI created sports articles, AI created recaps, and and you read if you have a, an AI created recap of a you know a, a Bucks Lakers game. It will hit all the points, but it won't have that little spark and that, and that little element that comes from art. So, yeah, I, I do think that, that there is a level of artistry that has to come with storytelling in any, in any medium. And that's, that's kind of the key. And it's like this idea that there's a little bit of magic to cultural products, right? It's, you know, if you try and sort of decompose a, like I said, it could be anything, an article, a TV show, a movie, you can take it into, you can take it into parts, right? Who were the main characters? How long was it? Um, who were the supporting characters? I mean, maybe if it's a movie, what locations was it set in? How many explosions? What was the CGI budget? But even beyond all that, you know, some pieces of art are just much more, I don't know, Im- impactful to people, right? right. right? And so th- this issue of taking analytics to sports or to culture it's one of my favorite things because very at the very beginning, you almost have to begin from the perspective that what you're doing with the analytics is decision support, right? You could quantify the different aspects of a film. You could quantify the different aspects of a point guard, right? But even if you gather a ton of data on all these things and you got columns and columns of information, do we ever feel like we get to sort of that kind of complete thing where you would trust the computer to make the decision, where you would trust the computer to make the movie, or you would trust the model to tell you who you should draft in the NBA draft or the NFL draft? I don't think so. And and so sort of point one on this, you know, bringing analytics to this is, you know, understanding that we're going to be in the realm of, let's say, decision support rather than making decisions. Yeah, that's an interesting way to frame it. It, it, it you, you've got to have the most information possible, but then you still have to put put it out in the world. I mean, if 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 we could predict exactly what was going to happen, there'd be a whole lot of people making a whole lot of money in Vegas as as opposed to the house making all the money. So yeah, it's that that's absolutely an element of it is that decision support. What is it about sports in particular 
that in addition to just being a fan, in addition to monetizing your, your, your interests, what is it about sports that you think makes it such a ripe uh, uh, venue for this kind of analytics? Well, sports is, I, I'm even going to, I, uh, the thing that I like about sports compared to the rest of the cultural products out there. And I don't know that, that a lot of people appreciate this until they really, until they hear it. And then it really resonates with them. Sports is probably the most objective, right? It's actually the most pure of the cultural products out there, right? Because there's actually, you know, Jordan plays Isaiah Thomas in a game of basketball with some other guys out there. And we actually get to see who's the better basketball player, right? And that's different than, you know, do we know who the the better political candidate is? No, we kind of know who people like. Do we know who the better singer is? Is Taylor Swift the best singer in in America, Jay? Uh, Well, at the risk of of incurring the wrath of a a million Swifties, I'm going to say yes, she absolutely is. (laughs) Yeah, quantitatively, there's no doubt that she is, right? Right. But is she actually? So uh, to me, that's the, the, the thing that about sort of, you know, if I'm just talking in the world of fandom, sports is always going to be my starting point because y- at some point you play the games and you see who wins. But I think there's a, I, I do think there's an important lesson in all that, that, you know, when you're thinking about applying analytics to sports stories versus other stories, you kind of got to realize that, you know, we get less objective and we get more into, uh, you know, sort of the the role of the market manipulators in something in, in these kind of things. Well, and there's a level of randomness too. I mean, you can't go and, and focus group who the winner of uh, of that Jordan Isaiah or you know or, or uh, Bucks Lakers or whoever it might be, Georgia Ohio State. You can't focus group and say, all right, well, you know, most people think that Georgia's going to win, so Georgia wins. No, it's it's all completely. It, it plays out live in real time in front of us all at the exact same time in a way that that no other sort of uh, uh, venue can match. Yeah, and and look, in contrast, we don't know who's going to win the college football playoff coming up. We might have our predictions, but you know what? If you're watching entertainment like on things like Netflix, you know how you uh, you know you, you watch Netflix for a while and you know what the number one show is going to be, right? It's the show that they're going to push, right? I mean, I recently watched eight episodes of something called Wednesday, <laughs> and it enables me to talk to my daughter and all sorts of younger people. But it's it's was Wednesday the best show on the Netflix platform? Not necessarily, right? Purely subjective, but it is positioned in a way so that Wednesday was going to win. Whereas in sports, you have a little bit more purity. Not only that, Wednesday or whatever you're talking about on Netflix is a completed product that is finished before it's ever brought to the public. You find where you find there are problems is when you try to try to adjust art to what you think that the public is going to want. Or you try to adjust it midstream. You can't do it. So yeah, sports, it just, it's, it's completely untethered in a way that, that other popular culture is not. Yeah, I, absolutely. Right. And, and that's, and, but again, you know, this, this gets into sort of the, you know, why do I end up in this kind of realm? And it's, you know, it, I mean, it, it sounds kind of pretentious. It's like, well, it's important because it's, you know, the, the cultural impact of these things is kind of what moves mountains, what moves society. But it also is like one of the remaining things that is really kind of pure out there, right? That they play the games and that determines who ends up on top. Well, and that's why rights fees for sports are astronomical and always going up because it's the last 
true. You can't go and, and record the Super Bowl and watch it three days later, whereas you can watch Wednesday three days after it comes out. You don't have to worry about missing that. You might get something spoiled, but you can't go and say, hey, you know what? I'll catch the Super Bowl in, in a couple of weeks. I'll get there. It, you have to be there watching it in the moment or it's it, it goes immediately stale. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's let's move on to a, a little bit of a different direction here. Kind of let's oppose what we talked about last week. What do analytics do that storytelling can't? Storytelling sets up the narrative. What do analytics do that that is not capable when you're focusing on just the creation of the narrative? Well, you know, I, you know, as you asked that, it, you know, it, the the wheels kind of turn, and I, I think one of the interesting things about this whole conversation is we can almost have this on like different levels. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can talk about the the role of analytics within a story, right? I mean, you know, you know, especially from the realm of sports, telling a story with numbers. Um, but there's also this notion of, you know, how is the story going to perform analytically, right? right? In, in terms of how is it going to move, how's it going to move consumers, right? How is it going to be, you know, what can analytics do in terms of, you know, predicting or even designing what you're going to do? And, and look, a hundred percent, I think it's, I think that, you know, based on the way our conversation's been going, there's going to be a, a tension right at the onset, right? And I can almost imagine that in your world, you almost have, a, it's almost like the standard idea of like the studio executive that is just looking at the focus group data and then telling the artist what they need to include. Yes, the notes. Right. Right. And, this, and the same kind of thing. It's like, well, you know, Jay, your article's you know, your, your article is good, but there's not enough Tom Brady kind of thing. <laughs> it is scary um, to think how close that is to uh, the truth at times, believe it or not. <laughs> but, but so when I think about analytics and I think about, you know, let's say selling the storytelling or using analytics to support. And again, you know, if I got one word for this and that the word is support, mm-hmm. right? The story, the narrative is the core product. The analytics is what supports you know, the, the people developing and marketing the core product. I think the, and especially for these cultural products, maybe the, the most important lesson to learn is to sort of be able to think through at the outset, how to take, how to sort of take the system apart. Okay. And, and so I, I think in, in two ways, both in terms of like what goes into the content, you know, so again, is it, what's it what's the topic of the article how long is it you know with with the the podcast we're doing there's also a video element what should the video elements look like uh, i'm the video element for us is i'm in my basement look like you're in your den yep. is that the way to go probably not <laughs> right but there's you know there's there's layer upon layer in terms of how these things are put together we're going to shoot for about 45 minutes should we be going for 25 minutes? Should we have brought in a, you know, a, a high-profile guest, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's piece by piece by piece by piece. And on the opposite side of it, it's, it's different than a sporting event where we're saying, well, you know, the Bulls beat the Lakers, and this is kind of the key output. When you write an article, when I publish a podcast, you know, a bunch of different things potentially happen, right? You know, how many eyeballs are on it? How long did they spend with it? Um, are they going to, you know, to subscribe to the podcast or get an email alert via, you know, via Yahoo? Are they going to follow you on Twitter? Um, are they going to return next week to Yahoo? Or are they going to return to some Emory product, right? So 
it's like there's a lot of elements, a lot of attributes on the one side in terms of what goes into these products, and then a lot of potential outcomes that you might have an interest in in looking at. Does that? I, I, th- I think I, I may have talked my way a little bit away from your no, original no, no, question. I, mean, I, I think that talking ourselves away from the original question ought to be like the, the, the overriding theme okay. of this of this podcast and this class. Well, <laughs> <can't help> it, <laughs> right? Once you get going, it's it. I mean, once you either one of us gets going, it's it's fun. Yeah. That's that's the whole joy of discovery yeah. here. I mean, in terms of the way that 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 websites use analytics and media sites use analytics, I mean, there's there you're, you're exactly on point. There's there are what's known as daily active users. How many times does a, an individual come back to a site in a month? Do they pop in and they want to read one story about uh, King Charles or do they want to come back every single day and get their news diet from there? Do they want to see one quick video of uh, the, the the Patriots making a horrific mistake at the end of the game against the Raiders or do they want to get their daily updates on their team? So, and obviously, you know, if you're running the site, you, you want the latter, you want them engaged. But the, the question of how to measure people, this is where I think that your that, that that your analysis is dead on. That it's not just a matter of numbers; it's a matter of what those numbers mean. It's a matter of what those numbers have behind them. the The overall context is what's the key. So that seems like uh, that that everybody involved in, in storytelling and content creation of one degree or another needs to have a a deep awareness of how those analytics can can serve them. Well, and, and again, it, it's um, you know, I. I always find myself a little bit torn on this stuff, right? Because I think when we start out, when someone starts out trying to tell a story, trying to develop a cultural product, it's almost it's almost taboo to think about the market, right? To think about the the consumers. It just seems like you should be doing something more pure. But if but you know, once you get you know, sort of lose that idea and go, well, we're in the we're in the marketplace. And then if the idea becomes, well, if I do really great work, that's going to attract an audience, you know, then you, and again, I'm I'm sort of talking, I'm talking, it's kind of high level analytics philosophy here. When you say great work, well, then that question should very quickly pop in your head. Well, what do you mean by great work? Right. And once you even have some notion of great work, then breaking it down into the parts that get to this overall great work. And that's something that tends to be very tricky to do. I mean, one of the examples we've talked about doing in class is to actually use an analogy and talk about, you know, quarterbacks. It doesn't have to be quarterbacks. If you think about an athlete, you know, a great player, you know, we'll talk about quarterbacks in class. So let's talk about basketball for a second. A great player does a lot of different things. They score points. They rebound, they steal the ball. They may even have some, I don't know, you know, intangibles of like how many times they're on the floor, right? So there's a lot of components that go into this notion of great. And I think, you know, philosophically, when you're in the, when you start to want to put analytics to understand content and storytelling, you've got to go through that task of trying to take the core product apart. But you know, as a writer, I, I almost want you to object to me and go, I can't take what I do apart. What I do is what I do is a holistic body yeah, of work. I mean, it depends on what we're talking about here. If you're talking about the the idea of art itself, I mean, it, it resists being pulled apart like that. But if you're talking about art as commerce, which to some extent that you have to do, 
then yeah, it, it absolutely falls into that that kind of analytical sphere. What's what's interesting is you, you were talking earlier about writing for your audience and writing great work and your audience will follow. And it's it's any anyone who's creating something goes through these kinds of stages where first of all you want to create for yourself, you know, to make yourself happy. And and once you're able to do that, then you want to write with an audience in mind. But the, it's this tightrope that you have to walk because if you try to write exactly what you think the audience wants to hear, and what they want to see or what they want to feel, you're going to end up with something that's just completely that, that has no spark and no life to it because it's just trying. It's just trying to serve a need. It's not trying to be uh, a art on its own. It's not trying to be a creation of its own. So that's the trick that you fall into on my side of things. But I, I definitely think that that there is any anybody who writes or anybody who creates without a consideration for what their audience is it needs is not going to be creating for very long. Certainly not for money. Well, and this is my my suspicion, is that if I was able to get in your head, okay, and so, and again, I'm not, I was able to get into your head and sort of like monitor how you create a story, I bet you a lot of what I'm talking about is actually occurring within your mind, but it's occurring in the background or it's occurring so quickly you don't even oh, absolutely. think it through. That it's like, that, you know, connect, you know, but, but again, if you could really decompose it into where it is sort of being reflected in terms of how the audience is perceiving it, it probably is, you know, you, maybe you can sort of decompose your art into a bunch of attributes. But 100%, and I think this is where the tension is, the last thing I would ever want to do it, I mean, if we were working, I don't know who the best filmmaker is. It's like, who, who did uh, The yeah. Godfather? Is that right, Coppola? Yeah, you know, I, I think the last thing you would want to do, or, or let's say the best basketball general manager, let's say it was Red Arbach, right? I, betraying my age. The last thing you probably would want to do is have those guys detail all of the rules and the, how they make each decision and each design element in terms of what they do. Because I do think, you know, it's like that idea of translating these binary yes, no kind of rules to, uh, you know, product or art creation right. just isn't going to work. But I think that's the the big story of terms of like, if you're moving into this realm, that that's the path you got to go on, though. You got to figure out how to sort of at least begin to take this stuff apart so you can relate the attribute decisions or the design decisions to what occurs in the market you know, market outcomes. But again, I'm not saying this is easy. And this is probably why I think a lot of performers and artists get upset with the business executives. You've got to do it in a way that does not stifle or feel like you're implementing a rules-based structure the, on the, the creative process. Figuring out how to to make sure that the analytics are, are working in the same direction and not trying to, to blunt the creative process for its own sake. I mean, you know, I work in, in analogies and metaphors and comparisons all the time. And, and the comparison I could make is, is this. You and I grew up as basketball fans in an era when the big man was the dominant focus of a basketball game. You know, Patrick Ewing, Hakeem Olajuwon, Shaquille O'Neal. You, you, you made sure to get a big man and you stuck him in the middle and then everything worked around him. Well, if you try to do that now in the NBA – it would be four on five that that big man would get run off the court. He would be useless in most situations. He couldn't shoot from distance. So that's, and and if you try to stick to that old model, then you're lost. It doesn't matter 
what uh, how how much money you pay this guy that it's still gonna he's gonna be a useless factor, and that's why the NBA has moved on to a completely different speed, a cl- completely different style at this point. So if you're if you're sticking with one style of of creation and you don't pay attention to the way the trends are working around you and and you don't analyze the trends that are moving around you, you're gonna be lost. Yeah, that's a. Uh- that's actually a really interesting point, almost to us from a. St- you didn't put that in statistical terms, but that's a great point, almost more for the let's say the hardcore statisticians coming at all this, because you know when you're thinking about, oh, let, let me sort of back up for a second. I think another thing that's kind of key when you're getting into this idea of anata- analytics to support storytelling and content creation is that you are very flexible in terms of the techniques you end up using, right? I would guess in terms of what you do, sometimes, you know, the business people at Yahoo, they might just show you a graph, right? Or a chart. It's just reporting some descriptive data. But I also wouldn't be surprised if there are folks, you know, I mean, Yahoo's a Silicon Valley company that where there's some machine learning or AI people that are out there trying to figure out how to bring in even more data and do ever more complicated analytics, right? And so one of the starting points for, for you know, th- this discussion, I think, has got to be that there should be flexibility in all of this stuff in terms of what you're going to what you're going to look at right it's like and, and frankly it should probably be a suite of things of sometimes the the simplest thing the the, the the quick graphic is the best way to go it's easier to understand sometimes the more complicated analysis the machine learning or the statistical model maybe that's the way to go um, but that was a long way of saying that what i was hearing what you're saying is like this idea that you know it's not just this kind of deterministic kind of flat environment that is ever unchanging. And so when analytics come into play, um, if you're using someplace, let's say model that's been developed over time to forecast how Jay's next article is going to go, very often you're almost in this range of what st- statisticians would call an out of, <laughs> out of range forecasting problem where you are just, you're basing, you're basing tomorrow's yeah, judgment yeah. on yesterday's data. And that is something that very few people get when it comes to their real life and why a lot of people end up being flat-footed and not adjusting yeah, to where the world is going. Skate to where the puck is going to be, not to where it is. <laughs> Absolutely, right? And I mean... I don't feel that old. I mean, I, I think I, I think I'm a little older than you. But I mean, when I think about even, you know, when I think about, oh, yeah. I mean, let's take social media for an example. For example, right? I want to say that you know something like Facebook and the Facebook model was really, and again, you know, we don't. Even, I don't even think we have to go into it. In a way, Facebook is about sell, selling a certain type of story, a certain type of content. The way this has switched over from Facebook to Twitter to Instagram to TikTok and Snapchat and you know whatever else is out there is you know probably a a good solid point to make in terms of not doing yesterday's well, there's, not doing there's yesterday's there's content. There's always going to be a significant portion of society 
or of any any group of, of human beings that craves something new. And they, they've seen Facebook and, and it doesn't appeal to them. Or they, they've been there and they've done that. They want to move on. They want to see what's new. That, and then by the same token, there's always going to be a, a group of people who just want to use social media to get on and 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 complain and so next door is for them to talk about uh you know whether or not they just heard gunshots and that kind of nonsense complaining but the 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 people that are actually driving the conversation they are insatiable in a way so they will burn through facebook and then instagram and then and then twitter and then tiktok and whatever the next one is going to be coming on the horizon uh they will burn through it and if you start to strategize against expecting that they're going to be behaving the way that they did on these prior social medias. Yeah. You're going to be five steps behind them. Yeah. I mean, and again, you know, if we're going to go through the exercise and figure out about how you, let's say decompose the content into, and again, maybe, maybe if there's a lesson here, it's decompose the content, but know the limitations of the analysis you're going to be able to do. You know, Facebook was, Oh, people really love stories about um, <laughs> your kids swim meet. Right. And they want to see pictures of your dog. Uh, Twitter, the message was, well, people want inflammatory comments that they can, uh, then they can start swearing you at. And, you know, TikTok now seems to be, well, people want right, to see people right. doing 15 second dances. You know, I, and, and again, it's like on a fundamental level, what you're saying is, you know, people want to, people want culture, art, they want to be entertained. They want to see what's new. Oh yeah, absolutely. Guess what? That's going to keep moving, Right. And so again, I think that's a good solid point in terms of the limitations of, you know, sometimes I hate the way I come across in these conversations because I find myself talking more about the limitations of analytics than the power of analytics. But I think in these realms, these artistic and content realms, it's probably like, and if you want to go all the way back to sports analytics, I think there's a truth too that the analytics are almost more of a bit player than they are sort of a real driver of well of, i think you know, the, the of, issue of the that you're getting at is that there is no guarantee i mean you could go and you could stack every single player and, and as we're recording this we're just coming off a news cycle in which the mets added something like almost a billion dollars worth of salary to their roster to to set themselves up for a world series run in 2023 and beyond there is no matter what, Steve Cohen, the owner of the of the Mets, is clearly just opening up the vault and just shoveling it like it's like it's coal into an old locomotive. I mean, he's just completely doing everything he can. It's still not a guarantee. What it does buy is relevance and awareness and a chance that a team like, no offense, the Pittsburgh Pirates might not have. So it's that. But the the question is. Is that enough or is it enough to, because it seems like that's, that's what you're getting at here. Analytics can only take you so far. And then at some point you just got to see how it plays out. You, you've set everything in motion and now you got to see how it plays out. And, and, and analytics can get you a long way down that road. But then what happens there is, is, is up to, and it's not even storytelling. It's just the way that, that the, that the story plays out. Yeah. And I mean, take that even a step farther. It's, it's one of the issues is you don't know often you're not sure right. how far analytics is going to get you down that road. Right. I mean, if you look at, let's say if you look at major league baseball over time, there's a strong correlation between winning percentage and relative payroll, right? You invest, you know, if you got a Los Angeles Dodgers payroll, odds are you're going to come out ahead of a Pittsburgh pirates payroll, but 
it doesn't always work out that way, right? And, and so in that case, you know, paying attention to those analytics, that tells you a good bit about where the story is going to go. Again, it's not perfect, but you know, you can start to come up with different stories where suddenly analytics is not going to take you quite as far. But, but you know, again, it, let, let's emphasize this. So understanding the relationship between payroll, investment and talent and winning percentage, yeah, that's really important, right? You're in one of those businesses. You got to understand exactly how that relationship works. But, you know, you start to move away from that and let's, you know, how about if you how how about if we we step away from sports for a second and we talk about hiring a bunch of high profile Hollywood actors to be in a movie, and suddenly we load the movie up with you know a bunch of megastars that are commanding twenty million dollars a film. I don't know about you, but certainly I feel a lot less confident that I'm going to create a great movie because now I've got you know because now I've got The Rock, Tom Cruise. Brad Pitt, <laughs> Angelina Jolie. You know what I'm saying? I feel less confident that that's going to work it's, out. But well, that's, it's that's the same you kind of argument. To your, you know, your big man center versus your point guard versus your shooting guard analogy. If you go and load up all your money on one portion and you don't have enough left over for a story or for anything like that, uh, then 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 you're in a world of hurt. I mean, I just I saw the the movie Spirited, which I don't know if you've seen that one, but that's that falls right into your megastar talent uh, uh, hypothesis. There, it's got Will Ferrell, it's got Ryan Reynolds. It's a contemporary retelling of a Christmas Carol. Yet another one. Uh, yes, uh, okay, it, that's on but, Apple but, Plus, but, isn't it? What, but my point okay. is that <laughs> that it's awful. It is horrendous. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so run far yeah. away from it. If, you know, by, okay. by the time, by the time the, the class hears this, Christmas yeah. is going to be gone anyway. But if it sneaks around back in, in 2023, don't watch it. <laughs> okay. But Jay, I subscribed yes. to Apple Plus because I wanted to watch Ted Lasso and I haven't turned that on in six months. So, you know, uh, well, and, and let me give you, let me give you another one too. Um, yeah. Drafting rookies into the NFL. Right. I mean, you think about the process that they go through on all of that, you know, the, the data that goes into the combine, the background checks, um, you know, looking at what they've done over their careers. How good are NFL teams at projecting yeah, who's going exactly. to be a great quarterback? Right. I mean, it's, you know, and so, again, it's like the data is incredibly valuable. You're probably doing better if you collect all the data. But God, it it's so hit or miss when it comes to like sort of next level kind of things or going to something, you know, going to something that is a, a yeah, step and, and up, let's you, say, for the You athletes. don't know how they're going to perform. You don't know what X factors are going to be at play there. You know that there's going to be something more involved. You know that there's a good chance that 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 things could go right. You know, you if Georgia and Alabama and Ohio State are bringing in dozens of four and five star high school recruits, you know, there's a real good chance that those recruits are going to develop, but there's not a, it's not a, it's not a 100% chance. I guess the question might be from an analytical perspective is, is how do you refine your formula so that you can understand how to get more and more of those players to hit that level, to reach that level, to be ready to play at the, at the, at the highest SEC level, and then again to play at the NFL level. Moving okay. forward here, we talked about the, the limitations of analytics. Um, 
what do you see as the as the most effective way to use analytics? And if we're going to focus on, let's let's hypothetically talk about your uh, fandom team rankings, your NFL fandom rankings that you've done to to great acclaim and and often to great scorn from teams that you uh, that rank low in the rankings. What do you use from an analytical perspective? If the question is who has the best NFL fans? Okay, so you know, as you were saying, that sort of talking about the fan bases that were angry. I'll tell you, the number of death threats has dropped precipitously since <laughs> they moved that team from Oakland yeah, well, to the best thing Las was uh, when Patrick Mahomes himself got upset yeah. at, at your uh, at, no, on Twitter at your because I wrote the story and and he saw it and he got upset yeah. at it. So you know, it's it, hey. It's it's not it's not your, your it's not your fault, Patrick. Yeah. It's your fans' fault. Okay. Yeah. Well. Okay. So you know. So the, it's a the the fan base rankings are something that started out as kind of a a fun thing with I think an important marketing lesson, right? So it's like this idea of can we quantify fan loyalty? You know, so it's kind of like bringing technology and modeling and data to, I don't know, maybe a, a barroom kind of debate about who, who the best fans are. And so I, I do these and it's, it, it, I describe it as like a good faith effort to do it. Like, I, I don't care who wins the, I don't care who wins the rankings. Um, you know, I don't have any great stake. You know, like if I was doing the rankings, like I grew up a Pittsburgh Steeler fan, <laughs> the Dallas Cowboys would always be taking a beating, right? It doesn't. It doesn't happen, right? It's like I do my best. I'm as I'm an honest broker of the data, but yeah, the responses are usually aggressive, right? And then there's, you know, I, I've got a real love for like Buffalo and Cleveland fans after doing those rankings for years because those guys are actually legitimately <laughs> funny in their attacks well, that, on. You know, that brings up an interesting point because with the rankings, um, and and we could show the class these rankings at some point, the most recent one, but. For the most part, it's the teams that you would expect to be up at the top or at the top, Dallas, Pittsburgh, New England, and teams at the bottom you'd expect to be at the bottom, Tennessee, yep. Jacksonville. But the Kansas City Chiefs were the one that, that got a lot of people upset because they were so low down. I mean, what's up with that? I, I, don't, even, I, I don't have any other well, way to put it than that. What do you do when, you, when an analysis that you, that you feel that you, that you have faith in in every other way seems to show something that doesn't jive with what you, you feel uh, uh, emotionally. Okay. And this is, you know, this is, uh, this is a, a key question and a great question because it really right. highlights, it highlights the bottom line on this stuff that what is your job at, as the analyst is that you've got to understand the analysis you're doing at a level that you understand the benefits and the weaknesses of the analysis. You have to understand why you're seeing what you're seeing on the other side. It can't be this black box that you go, oh, look at the computer. <laughs> the, compu the, the AI says that fans are no good, Jay. I can't, I can't do anything about this. Speak to my AI manager, yeah. the man behind the, right, what's the Wizard right. Oz. The, do not pay attention to the man behind the curtain. Um, okay, so the, in the most recent rankings, I'll, I'll, I'll ignore the Chiefs for a second here. The team that doesn't make any sense is actually the Las Vegas Raiders. Because one of the key metrics in that is revenue, sort of the gold standard of marketing. And if you look at the publicly available data, the Las Vegas Raiders, I think, have the highest ticket prices in the hmm. league by about 20%. I mean, it's astonishing. 
and, and so the, 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 the analyst has to be able to go, okay, so something is clearly happening here. And it's almost like I want to put a little mental asterisk by the Raiders results, because look, I, I could only speculate. Maybe they're distributing a lot of tickets at inflated prices through the casinos and they're not actually, and they're not actually selling them. Right. So somehow maybe they're, they've got a, a piece of data out there that's not entirely entirely pure. I get a similar result when I do NBA rankings where the Cavaliers tend up ranking higher than people think because LeBron, mm. when LeBron plays there, they get all these social media followers. And that's another, and that's another metric. In the case of the Chiefs, I get that the Chiefs fans think they're great, but that one's an easy answer. You look at the data in terms of the prices the Chiefs charge, and they're not at par with the rest of the league. You look at the social media following that the Chiefs have, and they're not at the same level as some of the iconic uh, teams in the league, right? It's like, let's put it this way. I mean, Pittsburgh's a little bitty market. Steelers are charging more money for the Chiefs, for tickets than the Chiefs. Um, The Steelers have, you know, three, four times as many social media followers. And and so I, I sympathize with those people. I understand the passion of the folks in the stadium. But when I'm doing these kind of measurements as a, of, of the impact of the brand sort of more broadly, they just don't, you know, the, the, in some ways the numbers are limited, but the numbers don't lie. Maybe, you know what? I like that phrase. Mm-hmm. It's like the numbers are confessing to what the numbers and, know. Yeah, and, and it doesn't and you got to know what the numbers the don't know. The depth of passion. You know, you can't measure passion. The people that are diehard Chiefs fans, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're ride or die for that team. But there's not as many of them or there is not as, as widely dispersed or there, or the passion, whatever it may be, drops off in a hurry. Once you get out of that, that core, whatever it might be, 500,000, 200,000 that are, that are, that are hardcore fans. Okay. Can I stay yeah. there for a second? Cause I think that's a really interesting question. It's like, because in some way that's what this all boils down to. The analytics of cultural products is an effort to measure passion. And you're dead right. We can't measure passion. And I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a psychologist having people come into the lab. You can't measure passion. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to come up with like a proxy for it or something that's highly correlated with that. And sometimes mm-hmm. we're going to mm-hmm. miss by yeah, a little I mean, bit. And sometimes we're going to miss by a bunch. If, does it make you less of a fan if you don't go to every game? I mean, if you don't go to, if you don't outfit your children and don't name your children after famous players, does that make you less of a fan? I mean, in some, some by, by an analytical measurement, yes, but in terms of measurement of the heart, no, no. So that's, I think that's, a, that's an interesting point of that's where the, the gap between analysis and, and, and passion starts to, to become a little wider. Well, look, I mean, if there's a Dallas Cowboys fan who is willing to pay three times as much for a ticket as a Kansas City Chiefs fan, you know, all I, you know, look, to me, then the, da- the data is going to look like the Dallas Cowboy fan are more passionate and they care more. Now, we also have this kind of more, let's say, human knowledge that doesn't come into it. And we get to the point where, yeah, look, and you can almost, and this is why this is fun to do is like this kind of barroom conversation, right? <laughs> Dallas Cowboy fans, I, you know where I'm going with this, right? Dallas show up five minutes after kickoff. They're just there to make an appearance. They do have nowhere near the passion of us fans in Buffalo that are out there when it's 20 below and we're throwing ourselves through tables or the, you know, the number of Chiefs fans that need to tell me that they are the loudest stadium in the NFL, right? It's, 
again, it's, it's almost like this is the beauty of it, right? It's like, it's a never ending conversation. Well, right? and that, and so that you just brings gotta, up a question. You got to know what analytics are getting. I, I want to throw to you about analytical bias because it, 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 we all perform our own analytical bias by, by, picking out only the categories and the components and the criteria that, that weigh things in our favor, you know, no, maybe our, maybe, you know, hypothetically speaking in the, the voice of the chiefs fan, no, we don't spend as much money on, on, on souvenirs, but we're the loudest stadium that shows how much passion we have. So how do you adjust for that kind of, of to, to prevent against that, that bias in analysis? Well, okay. So, Bias is bias is a huge word in all this, right? And and this is where I think it, it comes back to this point of just knowing how your analysis works, right? I mean, and so come up with a let's like come up with like the dumbest example of all time, right? It's like so. Let's say that you know, let's say you, there's an index for the articles you write, and let's say the the average index for a Jay Busby article is 100. And then you write an article about uh, I don't know, who's, who's sort of the most controversial figure in sports at this point. Okay, you write an article about Kyrie Irving, and Kyrie Irving just goes on a tirade and trashes you on Twitter and all of his other social platforms. You know, if you're just gathering the data, you know, it's like, well, when Jay writes articles about Kyrie oh, Irving, yeah. look, the readership spikes by right. sevenfold. Right. Right. But that's not what happened. Right. And so if you know what's sort of being fed into this and so where, where the data might be creating biases that aren't reflective of what's going to happen in the future, you can correct for, for some of that. Um, maybe the more dangerous thing is, you know, I guess the more dangerous thing is always going to be the biases that we don't know. Right. And I, and I think this is probably more of what you're, you're, you're getting at. It's like, and again, it's like, what analogy do I want to use? Like, you know, I'm this, this old sports executive that, uh, you know, I, I just believe in these Duke basketball players. You know, I believe in these Duke basketball players and I'm going to draft them every time because I love that program. And I love the way these kids perform, how professional they are, et cetera, et cetera. There, I would almost argue that the proper role of analytics is to yeah, help yeah. that person like correct for themselves. Right. You know, and, and, yeah, and I mean, the same and, thing, and whether it's that, in sports or that, whether it's in a media kind of, of not knowing what you don't know. That's a huge issue in sports in terms of, of, of putting together a team, putting together a coaching staff. You know, there's, there's all kinds of complaints now that, that owners hire coaches from the same pool and, and that pool tends to be old coaches, you know? So there's the, 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 the coaching carousel. If you're not looking off that carousel, if you're just looking to recycle the coach who's been with the Jets and the Packers and the Vikings before, then yeah, obviously you're going to have a very limited pool and you're not going to be able to look at that young offensive coordinator who might have something more to offer. So yeah, that's, that's absolutely correct. Yeah. Like I, I can remember being in a, um, I won't give any details, but being in a, uh, a draft room, um, it was actually an expand, you know, a, an expansion draft room and I'm doing the, you know, helping the the club build the analytics for, you know, player selection here. Uh, the reality is that the people doing that player selection, they've got PhDs in their sports, 
right? They don't have a formal PhD in their sport, but they've been playing it and coaching it and scouting it for decades upon decades. This, this happened to be a sport where I don't consider myself anywhere near an, an expert. And so what I'm bringing to the table there is a pure numerical analytical approach, but I'm in no illusions that I'm going to dictate who they select. The role there is purely to say, hey, yeah. this guy that you really like, I'm not sure, right? There's a question mark there. And this guy that you, and, and besides that, here's three guys that you didn't have on your list that maybe should get another look. And you know what? You know, that's for a sports figure. It's probably the same oh, kind yeah. of role where analytics should play in a lot of content decisions. Like it's like, Jay, you wrote this article <laughs> about middle school well, football. I'm trying to win an award. <laughs> my data is <my> <laughs> My data says it's a bad idea. You know, I mean, without but your audience is your audience, any corporate right? secrets. I mean, I'm not telling any. All you've got to do is look at what sports are emphasized, not just at Yahoo, but but everywhere. What's emphasized? NFL, college football, and then on down from there. And then you get down to the lower, you know, NASCAR, tennis, whatever it might be. There's a reason why you don't see 15 tennis articles every day and you see 15 NFL, new NFL articles every day because it's it, it's the straight analytics. Well, I don't know how much time we have left here, but uh, but we have run our, our two-man weave here. What else did you want to hit on before we uh, wrap up this analytics aspect that we haven't touched on so far? You know, I, I you know the challenge in what we're doing, Jay, is we're teaching a class in a hybrid sort of mixed delivery format, right? We're, we're going to talk to the students at Emory via, via uh, several Zoom sessions in early January. I, I think the only thing I want to emphasize is, you know, to the, the folks listening, you know, via the, the podcast where we're sort of giving them a, a taste of what we're doing in the, in the Emory class. And, you know, so maybe just a, a brief summary in terms of where we've been on this podcast. And, and I'll give you my reflection. So we start off with this general question, this general conversation about storytelling and analytics, about how this is where the world is moving. We then dove into the, the basics of storytelling in terms of, you know, the thing that struck me in episode two, I think was, and I'm going to get this wrong, but something about like the idea of, well, you write drunk and you write fast and then you come <laughs> back and you edit sober. Yes, that's it. That's it. And then, you know, and sort of that, that's kind of a nice kind of, you know, shorthand for content creation until we get to today. And, you know, the message that I've tried to convey is really this idea that, you know, be flexible in your analytics, understand your analytics. So, you know, the, the benefits and, you know, the costs and in some ways, never forget that the analytics is a supporting role in terms of this magic that comes into content that resonates with people. And like you said, the, the numbers have limits, but the numbers don't lie. I mean, that's that's don't ha lie. having that that kind of baseline to work with, I think, is is crucially important. Okay, so I'll give you the last word. You got anything else to add to my <laughs> reflections on the, my reflections on this three class sequence? I would, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that it's it's a it's a great setup. I mean, you know, I think that that I can think of uh, many dozens or hundreds of journalists like myself <laughs> who could who could uh, benefit from, and I don't mean this in a critical way, just from from being able to understand the analytics behind not just the creation of the story itself, but the dissemination of the story and the, and the way that you. It's not about creating a framework where you're just trying to, to force product on readers. It's a way of analyzing what works and what doesn't and, and figuring out, getting as far as you can into to what makes that human connection with people that you can, can break down into numbers and then work from there. 
Thank you, Jay Busby. And I'll see you on campus via Zoom at Emory in two weeks, three weeks.